You are listening to WRFG Atlanta, 89.3 FM. Up next, Alternative Perspectives, Atlanta's only queer radio hour. Hold on tight. And welcome to WRFG Atlanta 89.3 FM. This is Alternative Perspectives, Atlanta's only local radio are devoted exclusively to issues affecting Atlanta's queer community. I am your host, uh, Greg Boston. Thank you for listening. Looks like we had another nice day of weather yesterday uh, and today. Uh, the opinions expressed here are those of myself and my guests and do not necessarily represent the views of WRFG, its employees, board, volunteers, funders, or listeners. So hopefully everybody is doing well. Um, tonight on the show tonight, we have a interview um, with an author by the name of David, David Ambrose uh, about a book that he just wrote. It's his first book. It's called A Place Called Home. And uh, he is a child advocate um, for uh, foster care kids in particular. He's also queer, um, and he grew up uh, both homeless and in foster care, and this is what his book is about, A Place Called Home. It's quite amazing, and as far as I'm concerned, needs to be required reading so people can understand what it's like to grow up homeless and grow up in the foster care system in uh, America, which is woefully inadequate, and David is, uh, has made it his life purpose to try and change things so but before we get to the interview news of the queer uh-uh. i know that's right oh, no she didn't say what and it's just me today uh alex uh will not be with us today because we're going to have a shortened version of our news because uh quite honestly uh david and the book and the topic is quite um compelling so uh, just a couple of news items for you, both of which are not great. Uh, conservative Muslims join forces with Christian right on Michigan book bans. Uh, a recent school board meeting at which about a thousand people gathered in Dearborn, Michigan, which is uh, has a huge uh, Muslim population. Um, but about a thousand people gathered to pressure district officials to censor books with LGBTQ plus themes uh, was in most ways similar to hundreds of other recent book ban hearings across the U.S. Speakers allege the books promote mental health issues and self-harm, while the school district and liberals were seeking to indoctrinate children. Gay people, they said, were creeps and pedophiles, and gay lifestyles were equated with zoophilia. Uh, American values and the American way is not child pornography, one angry parent told the Dearborn Public School Board. Uh, this is really sad. Um, uh, but the speakers were not the white right-wing Christian conservatives who you would usually see doing this, uh, but instead Muslim Arab Americans, which is really very scary. And I would just say once again, if I had had books uh, growing up that talked about gay people, uh, I would certainly would have felt uh, much better, but apparently apparently they don't want that to happen. So that's really sad. And the other uh, news, which is also sad, is a Supreme Court case 
Um, the Supreme Court sometimes makes significant moves long before it hears arguments in a case, and such is the case in a blockbuster LGBTQ case pending before the court in its newly opened 22-23 session. Uh, in the appeal 303 Creative versus Alinus, the anti-LGBTQ group Alliance Defending Freedom asked the court to decide whether a business could claim a religious exemption uh, to a state law prohibiting discrimination based on sexual orientation. Um, the court said, nah, we're not going to answer that question, but we will accept an appeal to answer a different question, which is whether a business can claim a free speech right to discriminate. Okay, By examining the free speech, speech claim the course is setting up its eventual decision to have far broader implications than just a religious exemption to civil rights laws. Um, uh, uh, we've the, the court is going to decide whether any business can simply articulate any reason to refuse serving customers based on their sexual orientation, race, gender, or protected status based on free speech, which of course sounds crazy, uh, but this is actually on the docket. And so we are looking to see what will happen there, because if it turns out that free speech gives you the right to deny access uh, in public to uh, people that are LGBTQ, the same could be said for um, uh, people of color. Uh, and we could start banning people again um, from restaurants because they are black. I mean, why not? Uh, anyway. Such a sad state of affairs, definitely. Uh, and with that, uh, we will be right back. Folks, uh, welcome back. That is Steely Dan, uh, Dirty Work. Uh, I don't know that it has much to do with the interview, but I just happen to like the song. Welcome back to WRFG <clears throat> Atlanta 89.3 FM on your dial streaming at uh, WRFG.org. Um, the show is Alternative Perspectives, and I am your host, Reg Bossen. This is Atlanta's only queer radio hour, which surprises uh, me uh, and now for our interview. So uh, we are highlighting an author and a book. Uh, the author is called David Ambrose, and the book is called A Place Called Home. It's a memoir and tells the story of the author David, uh, who we have on the show tonight. David is at present a uh, national poverty and child welfare expert and advocate. Uh, he was recognized by President Obama as an American champion for change. Uh, he is currently serving as the head of community engagement for Amazon. Uh, Ambrose previously led corporate social responsibility for Walt Disney Television and has served as the president of the Los Angeles City Planning Commission, as well as a California Child Welfare Council 
member. After growing up homeless and then in foster care, he graduated from Vassar College and later uh, earned his JD from UCLA School of Law. He's a foster dad and lives in Los Angeles, California. Thank you for coming on the show, David. I'm blushing. You can't see on radio. Um, And the only thing you didn't mention is that I'm also a Scorpio. So if anyone's wondering my astrological identification out there, it is um, rainbow Scorpio. What is that? What does that mean anyway? Scorpio? Oh my gosh. Yes. yes. I'll tell you my interpretation and folks out there may have a better sensibility of this, but it is a passion and vigor towards living life. And that manifests differently in different Scorpios. But uh, for myself, that's how I interpret it. Yeah, well, no, and I think that fits perfectly for you because you would have had to have had a passion for living life mm-hmm. and claiming your space in it mm-hmm. uh, in order to be able to get through what you went through in this in this um, in your story. So the the book actually came out just last month, and it tells the story of your life. Uh, mm-hmm. beginning uh, growing up homeless uh, with your mother and your two siblings. Uh, your mother was uh, mentally ill, um, and it starts with that. It goes into your time in foster care um, and goes through your uh, undergraduate time in Vassar. Um, you're gay. Um, you grew up homeless and then in foster care. And uh, I guess I could talk with you for hours about this, to be honest with you, about all of this and, and what happened. But you grew up in New York and uh, in uh, upstate New York a little bit, in New York City, in Massachusetts. Um, you were homeless for uh, a number of years. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess I, I just wanted to start with some of the stuff that really surprised me, because this book, uh, it, it feels like it should be required reading to be honest with you, for everyone, because uh, there are so many people in this country that do not know what it's like Mm -hmm. uh, to grow up in poverty uh, and to grow up in foster care. And this really gives an account. Um, And there are things in it that I was pretty shocked to hear. uh, And I'm just going to pick out a few I wanted to talk to you about. But while you were still very young, your family moved to Albany um, which, by the way, I thought that was a strange choice. I mean, it is the capital of the state of New yeah. York. So I'm wondering if perhaps there are better no, services no. there. No, I think if you're looking for logic and rationality in the minds of folks that are suffering from mental illness, it is is going to drive you insane. Uh, there yeah. is no rhyme or reason why we did what we did under my mom's yeah. tutelage. Yeah. So um, while you were there, you encountered and were physically assaulted by the police, your family. And uh, and um, I'd like you to tell us about that experience in particular that you talked about in the book um, and how it affected sure. you and your family. Because I don't think people realize you don't think of cops as being this way. So um, go ahead. Yeah. And I would say in general, I don't believe they are. Um, but the experience we had was thus, you know, we. We were, from my earliest memories, interacting with the courts and the police in various ways. You know, the courts would decide to, when we had um, housing, which was infrequent, evict us uh, onto the street. Or when we were living in Grand Central or, or the public spaces where we were, the cops would come through and push out the homeless to go elsewhere, to get out of the face of whatever particular constituency they were serving that day. 
And so my interactions with, with law were many and uh, from my earliest memory. And the incident you're talking about actually happened um, at a one moment of brief stability in our life when my mom was employed and we had an apartment and uh, the neighborhood we were in was, was terribly poor and not um, predominantly white. It was majority minority. And unfortunately throughout that early part of my life, my experience with police officers was not positive. And we were uh, coming home uh, from my mom's day at work. And, you know, in my, I was again, a child, my memory and my understanding of what was happening, my mom was picked on by the officers because of their disappointment in, in her living in this neighborhood. And I thought they were inebriated, um, which would not be atypical because I have many memories of uh, people in different official positions um, coming through our neighborhood and being drunk and yelling things out or when they would uh, break up fights inside of buildings, which were not atypical or in the shelters, the language that was used was so derogatory and so demeaning. And part of it was just, I think, sheer frustration with their own circumstances of having to deal with what they were dealing with. But in this particular moment, um, the officer physically attacked my mom and, and hit me. And it really shattered uh, part of my perception and conception of the world. It's not that I thought cops were going to save me, but I certainly didn't think of them as perpetrators of violence against me uh, or my mom. And my mom at that point had, you know, your mom is this, you know, a, a unclimbable mountain of a person in all of our hearts. And to see her attacked regardless of her violence against us was just shattering for the three kids. And I, I don't remember my age specifically. I, I did my best to reconstruct my age because I don't have photo albums. I don't have school records. I just was those things don't exist for my family. But I was a child. And this really um, made me fearful of folks in authority throughout my life, not just officers. But, you know, when a judge looks at you in the face and says, we're evicting you, uh, it is as shattering as someone hitting you across the face because you're going back into homelessness, back into the streets, back into the violence that's there. So all my interactions were very um, negative. And that, that is in part why I do what I do, which is to try and change those systems. So kids, 8.4, 8.6 million kids in America living in poverty don't have the experience that I had. Yeah. And, and one thing that, that incident, and, and it's important to note that you, you guys weren't doing anything. It was just the cop, just, they were drunk and, and your, your mom, which is, you know, it's a little hit or miss as to whether or not she was going to act, act right or appropriate or whatever, but she, she kind of held it together, but net didn't matter. She still was yeah. physically abused. And this is when she was working um, at a hospital. She was a nurse yeah. at some point, but because of her bruises, she stayed home and then when she finally made it back there, she was fired. Yeah. Is that right? You know. I think it was, you know, it definitely was the physical um, effects of being hit like that. Mm -hmm. But it was also the mental, you know, it set her mm -hmm. back significantly. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it took very little to trigger my mom in different ways that would have different outcomes. And in this instance, the physical violence left her in a, uh, I would say, I'm not a, a psychiatrist, but I would say a depressive state and somewhat of a fugue. And it wasn't a place we 
we infrequently found her. This just shoved her off a cliff into that. And so all of a sudden we went from, even though a short while, a job and an apartment, uh, it lasted months, if if months. And then all of a sudden we were back down the rabbit hole of of poverty and homelessness. But yeah, it set her off. And she, you know, she wasn't wrong, you know, and part of it was as a nurse, you really can't go there and have bruises all over your body. But she also is mentally ill. And this right. this this precipitated that that um manifestation of that. And all of a sudden we were back on the street. Yeah. Yeah. No, I it was it was um it was I guess I wanted to highlight it because, you know, it's kind of in response to people think, well, you know what, you know, obviously it's the mom's fault. She can't keep a job, blah, blah, blah. But when you look at it and read the circumstances of what happened, the kind of mental shape she was yeah. in and what she felt she, you know, she couldn't, she just couldn't do it, um, which mm-hmm. made, you know, made sense. Um, and so she didn't show up and that's why she, you know, when she did show up, finally she was fired. You know, it made perfect sense. Now, you know, it's clear from your book that your mom suffered from, well, there were different pieces of, I mean, your mom almost had different personalities. So it feels like sometimes she was depressed, almost canatonic, not, not necessarily available, um, but then, uh, other times she was loving, but then, then still other times she was physically abusive. Um, she was also paranoid. Um, and, uh, she, one part of the reasons why you moved around so much from place to place, at least partially was because she thought that you were being pursued by it, At least that's a sense I got. You never, you never really, you never really flushed it out maybe because you didn't quite know. But there was just this yeah. sense that she was being chased somehow or that the CIA yeah. was after her or something like that. Is that right? Yeah, I didn't flush it out in particular for a couple of reasons. One is is uh, at the time, it was unclear to me. Mm. And I wanted the reader to be with me on this journey where you just don't know. Uh, yeah. You have no idea what's going on. Um, and you're also a child. So <clears throat> how we conceive and perceive of things is just so vastly different than I do as an adult. But this is how it felt, which is it just felt constantly that I had no idea. It was like that. You remember that black globe, the eight ball, you like would shake it and then see what came up and out of yeah. this. Yeah, that would be your fortune. I had no idea minute to minute what was going to occur. And it doesn't matter what the name of her diagnosis was. That was what my reality was, which is good luck. Who knows? And uh, you better figure it out yourself. And that manifested in violence or neglect, uh, interactions with adults that were inappropriate on her part where she would, you know, explode. Um, so the particular name of it, you know, certainly does have an outfit that we can put on it. But for a child, and, and when I was a child, I had no idea. And all I knew was that in order to survive the streets and her, I had to be nimble, quick, and figure it the hell out pretty quick every single day, minute to minute. And it's honestly like, you know, moments of sheer nothingness punctuated by moments of sheer violence, but it was those 90% of those moments of nothingness anticipating the moments of violence that also leave a scar. Mm-hmm. My mom is still very much with us. I care for my mom and I am one of her caregivers and she is uh, treated now and is much better. Um, and it's kind of the unfulfilled promise we did in the eighties, which is when we deinstitutionalized everybody, we promised in community mental health. And instead we never fulfilled that. And that's why there are armies of homeless people out there suffering that we just shake our head at like my mom. 
I think my mom without my siblings and I would not be in an apartment receiving treatment as an 80 plus year old person. And the, I open up the book with, um, to my mother who taught me to forgive. And the reason I start the book that way in that dedication is because my mom did. And if my mom had a cancer and went bald or was sick, we wouldn't be mad at her. But in our society, mental health care is dastardly. It's shameful. And we don't talk about it. And yet so many of us have our own issues and we have family members with them. And we have to change that because otherwise we will not, we will not fix a problem we don't talk about. And progress has been made. But I always picture my mom and I, I kind of sometimes in my head do a little uh, prayer where I wish I could sit down and talk to this person for an hour and just know her and yeah. share with her. And I've, I've always thought that I, I thought that for 30 plus years of my life that I wish I could talk to my mom. And, uh, that is, she is a prisoner of mental health and that is a damn shame that weighs heavily on my soul. But a lot of us face that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we're speaking now. I'm just going to reintroduce you to David Ambrose, um, who is a, um, a, uh, a national poverty and child welfare expert and advocate. Um, and we're talking about his book, a place called home, which just came out uh, last month in September. So um, before we move on um, from, from your mom, um, I just, just a couple more things. One is uh, I, I just, it's very obvious to me that you love your mother and your, your relationship with your, with your mother is a complicated one. And I just, I wondered, she was mentally ill. You obviously know that now. In the book, it's kind of, you were telling this story, but I can tell that, you know, you you kind of fold in analysis of what's going on. But at the time, did you see her as mentally ill back then? Did your you and your siblings ever talk about this? It was something I was wondering about. Um I think that belies something, which is the, the idea of normal. So I think if you're going to identify something that's abnormal, you have to have your normal be X. And for us, normal, I was born homeless. I was born homeless, living in the dark corners of New York City and in, in public places. I bathed at Wendy's bathrooms. Mm -hmm. um, so to think about my normal and a deviation from my normal. No, I mean, my mom was my mom and all around us in these shelters and on the streets and in these slum apartments were folks suffering. Um, you know, it was New York in the eighties and it was, you know, a ton of Vietnam vets suffering from all sorts of ailments and, and uh, traumas that they medicated with alcohol or other things or their own just core mental health issues. It was an army of young men dying of AIDS, living on the streets, abandoned, um, it, my normal was, um, this, so my mom wasn't an aberration. My mom was something that I very much saw as we needed to manage. But, uh, as I got older, that has evolved, especially even as a, a preteen and then into my teenage years, I began to understand the world in a different way. So there's not one understanding of my mom. It had to evolve over time. The truth throughout my entire time with her and her custody was my job was to survive and take care of my family. And it didn't matter if I thought she was X, Y, or Z. Uh, I certainly understood by the time I was in my early teens that my mom was suffering from a mental health issue that I could identify 
um, through my own understanding. Remember, this is before the internet. So I wasn't going on Google somewhere or on my smartphone um, looking up symptoms. It was what's going on with mom today. And that's just normal. And a lot yeah. of kids, when they go home from school or they live, go home with an abusive parent or a neglectful family. And that's their normal. So for us, our normal was a parent who was ill-suited to do what she was supposed to do, which is care for three kids. And the state did not help her. And then we went into foster care. Yeah. So which, it was a whole other thing. So yeah, um, which I we'll talk about yeah. that. Um, as a matter of fact, we're going to take a quick break right now. Um, uh, we're talking with David Ambrose uh, about his new book, A Place Called Home, uh, where he uh, talks about growing up homeless and then in foster care. We will be right back. The following is a public affairs bulletin board announcement brought to you by your station for progressive information and handpicked quality music, WRFG 89.3 FM, WRFG.org. In response to a call by the United National Anti-War Coalition, UNAC, for renewed attention to the billions of dollars expended for war, military armaments, and enforcing economic sanctions on multiple countries, there will be a street action on Monday, October 24th in Atlanta. The International Action Center, Black Alliance for Peace, Friends of the Congo, Atlanta-Cuba Coalition, Workers' World Party, and others will assemble at the intersection of North Decatur and Claremont Road at noon to call for money for human needs, not for war at home and abroad. In the U.S. and around the globe, working and poor people of all nations bear the brunt of imperialist warfare, state repression, economic cutbacks, environmental catastrophes, and pandemic illnesses and death. The demonstration is to call for no more money for war. Participants are to bring signs, banners, drums, and noisemakers. Again, the date for the action is Monday, October 24th at noon at the intersection of North Decatur and Claremont. For additional information, the email is atlantaiac at aol.com. All right, and we are back. This is Alternative Perspectives, Atlanta's only <clears throat> queer radio hour, and uh, I am your host, Greg Boss, and we're spoke, speaking with David Ambrose uh, about his uh, uh, memoir, A uh, Place Called Home. So after, um, and, and we didn't cover all of it. There's a there's a lot of abuse that's chronicled in, in the book. Um, you know, you, you were you were physically abused, obviously mentally abused. Um, eventually you were able to get away. You were, you, you, and it took a couple of times, a couple of three times of uh, you uh, reporting to authorities. And, and this is another thing I wanted to highlight um, for the, um, uh, for the listeners is that um, at least twice um, after you report to the authorities an investigation is conducted, uh, during which the investigators come to where you you are with your mother and in front of your mother ask you 
um, if you, you know, have been abused, if you've eaten, if, you know, and, and obviously you were predictably afraid to be honest. And I was just curious, is, I mean, it surprised me to read this. Is this something that still happens uh, when there's investigations like this? Yeah, it's, it's an important part of the story where um, after decades of abuse and neglect, um, I managed to get the right person informed of what was going on, and they initiated the investigation with the Department of Social Services. And the interview took place in front of my mom. Uh, and relayed some of the things I would shared in private uh, with the uh, so, uh, school uh, dare officer. It is not practice to do it this way. It is, uh, in my mind, and as I understand it, an aberration, but does occur. And the reason it occurs is because we've taken a machete to the social welfare safety net and given people of uh, great intent very much too little support to do their job. So when you're investigating a ton of claims every single day and you are burdened to make sure you get to them, I think sometimes you do things like shortcuts. We all take shortcuts. We all slow roll that stop sign or we, we, you know, we make a left when we shouldn't. And it's not okay. I'm not giving it the, the okay, but we can't be shocked, shocked, shocked when we cut money for social services and teachers and schools. And then those folks do the damn best that they can. I don't blame that social worker for anything. What I blame is all of us who have allowed a system to become so underfunded that people are forced to take shortcuts with people's very lives, that their incentive structure is not necessarily to find the truth, but to get through the day. My sister today is a social worker. And I once asked her, she's been a social worker for decades. I asked her, what do you do? And she said, paperwork. And the reason yep. that's her answer is because they've been sued so many times that we've developed a system in response to a lawsuit that people who are gifted with compassion and an interest in uplifting humans are now filling out paper. That's their job. So yes, the interview took place in front of my mom. Yes, that had very negative consequences for me ultimately. And we should condemn it. And I did want to tell that story because it was important to the narrative to explain my attempts and my growing awareness that I had to get out of here. But it wasn't to condemn her or the social work or the system. We are the system. I always think of government as a description of the sandbox we create to play in so we don't kill each other. Well, we are the system. We are that person who did that. And right. are we okay with that? And we're, I'm not. You're not. People who are listening probably are not. So let's fix it. Yep. Yep. I was looking. It looks like the average caseload of a caseworker. Um, according to this statistic is between 24 and 31 kids, um, which is, I mean, you'd have to work on probably with the weekends, you'd have to work on two or three kids a day, but going out and, and a visit yeah. like that or calls, I mean, it takes hours. And if there's yeah. all this paperwork between it, yeah. um, you can see why somebody would be overloaded. And one kid who's in crisis that you're, you're, social worker mel as her name mm -hmm. in the book anyway um i mean when she was able to spend time with you it's only when you're in the most intense Cute. crisis yeah. like basically i have nowhere to lay down tonight yeah you know so this idea of trying to find a healthy home for you to live in we're just trying to find you a bed basically right you know um that's on us that is 100 percent on that, us that's all day 
that's that day, yeah. you know, and, and then years some, and into the night and, yeah. and, and she's got 30 other kids. I mean, yeah. come on. You know, I think what, the, the reform I ask people to consider is not policy by policy, but to close their eyes and imagine if they had to place their child in the system, if they had to place their niece or nephew or candidly, even themselves as a child, what mm-hmm. does it look like? Mm-hmm. And this is this is the Dante to your Virgil. This is the person guiding you through <laughs> the divine comedy. And if you want to get the hell out of hell, this is the person that's going to guide you. And unfortunately, we've created a system that grinds them, even those with great intention. And we pay them almost nothing. Mm-hmm. We need to pay them like the super all-star baseball players, basketball players, football players that they are. They are frontline workers. They are uh, heroes in our country. And we don't treat them like we do our soldiers who serve overseas, which I deeply respect, but we damn well should because they are doing a service that I can't even fathom. My sister tells me these stories sometimes and I'm like, you are a damn American hero. And I I beseech her to stop spending her money on her caseload because she doesn't get paid that much. Teachers do the same thing. So I look at that moment. And the reason I illustrate it in the book is not to condemn Mel. Mel helped me out a ton, but to really just say to all of us, this is what happens when you you just underfund a system to this extreme. People do things that they, they she she's not a bad person. Mm-hmm. But in this instance, and you know, you mentioned the caseload. Do you also realize that every time they go in a home, everybody in that home has to be part of the purview of the social worker? So it's not just 30. It's how many people in each of those homes, how many other siblings? She can't walk into a home and see a kid that doesn't have enough to eat and ignore it because that's not her kid. She right. has to be a, aware of the entire environment, which means multiple individuals in each home. So that 20 or 30 becomes 60 or 70, and she has to report all that. Yeah. So it's an incredible uh, task we put on these mostly women in our country, and we underfund it and underpay it, and this is what you get. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so eventually um, you were put uh, into a – a foster care home. But before that, actually you were in a facility and uh, during which you were um, uh, beaten, abused uh, because, you know, called fag uh, because I guess it was apparent that you were gay. And one of the people that was abusing you was your therapist in Mm -hmm. that facility, which I thought was just shocking. But Mm I, I, was that the first time that you were ever called out for being queer was when you went to this boy's facility? I think it was the first time when it was at the end of a fist, so to speak. I don't, I think, you know, young people use it as a taunt because it is a derogatory Mm -hmm. term in our society. You know, we, we don't call each other that uh, lovingly. Mm -hmm. Um, Maybe gay people do to each other, but overall our society does not look at that word favorably. Um, this is a state sanctioned individual, uh, who used it. And that was the first time that it was at the end of something of authority and power that I knew would have repercussions. And I was diagnosed right away as what they called at the time, gender identification disorder, which is, it's still a term. And it is more associated today with the healthy diagnosis of individuals with gender dysmorphia or folks that are, uh, potentially trans. So it is not a, a, a diagnosis that needs to be removed, but at the time it was broadly applied to girls and boys that did not conform uh, with gender norms. So it was clear that I was gay because they took me through a, a battery of tests 
And then I diagnosed me as a couple of things, one of which was GID and the state sanctioned the treatment of that. And it's not that the state said, Hey, go beat up this kid. But I was not allowed to be in normal, quote unquote, normal foster homes. I had to be put in a facility until a home that was merited and willing to take me in my condition, uh, which weren't a lot at the time. And this is in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. This is not some sort of Southern state. I want people to not always think the North has all the answers uh, or is a saint. We have our issues. All of us do across this country, especially with queer youth. Um, you know, upwards of 20% of kids in foster care today, 20 plus percent are queer. We're only eight to 10% of the population. Why are we double in the system? Wow. Insane. We can yeah. do better and we can step up and foster and do things to make sure that our systems are not just on paper welcoming, but in reality. Mm-hmm. So I went into the system. I went into this facility, which was a delinquency facility and Right away, I was assaulted, as you described, and I I told one of the many stories I might have told, and you know called Miss Ambrose and 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 all the other words. And eventually, at that facility, I was about twelve. I was twelve. I stopped crying. I hadn't. I knew that if I kept crying, uh, it would only make things worse. Um, and I didn't cry again until I was thirty-seven years old. And that was Whoa. that was the moment it started. Was when I went in that place and I was told what I was and what I was worth. And then that was reinforced over the years in some of the foster homes that I eventually went into. Yeah. Well, you, and you stated towards the end of the book, and I was not aware of this either, that the, the child welfare league of America had a policy around, I guess you said it was 50 years ago that it started that um, stated that this was something somebody uh if a foster child was queer this was somebody that this was something that needed to be fixed right i I don't know what the policy stated but you you intimated that that was a policy yeah so their travel for the american amazing organization and it uh it puts together model policies to help kids and it works with a number of different other partners it's a membership-based organization and it is a vital institution that i deeply respect um And when I was coming up in the system, it realized that it had a problem because the policy on paper was not affirming queer kids. Uh, We've made so much progress that we forget that not long ago, it was illegal to have sex in 30 plus states. So the Child Welfare League of of America's policy really represented what was going on in the country for 100 years. And they realized they had to change it. And so I was part of a movement within the Child Welfare League and Lambda Legal created something called the Joint Initiative, which was to look at what we should be doing with queer kids coming up in delinquency or dependency, foster care or juvenile detention. And they realized that it was not appropriate. It was not healthy. It was not good what was going on. And they wanted to change it. And I was the the queer kid inside the organization that raised their hand and said, I'll be part of this. And I worked on that very hard with a couple many other individuals uh, and land legal led the way and child welfare league really very quickly moved to perpetuate this across the country. And ultimately it became federal policy under president Obama second term. And uh, I'm very proud to be part of that first domino push to uh, make sure that kids didn't experience what I did when I went into foster care. Yeah. Cause your first home after you got out of the institution, your first home was with a, a couple um and uh there was a, a move to i guess b- 
butch you up or, um, you know, try and push as much as possible out of you that was gay um, and uh, by the by the parents. And I guess if yeah, they were in the same society as everybody else. Um, So, you know, this was was this in the 80s at this point or um, Uh, early 90s, early 90s. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, it, 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 it makes sense that that's, uh, what would happen, but, um, something in particular related to that is one of the ways that they, uh, that, um, particularly the, uh, the woman in the foster home, uh, one of her particular methods for, um, I guess, trying to affect change in you was by withholding food. Um, and I just, I wanted to touch on this for a second because it's really quite poignant the way that you talk about your relationship with hunger um, and how it almost became your friend and a tool um, for dealing with the abuse and the neglect that you had even in the foster care system. And I wanted, I wondered if you could speak to that just for a second and tell me where you sure. are with that issue now, because those issues are lifelong, you know, my understanding is so. Yeah, I mean, more than 8 million kids in America are experiencing poverty today. More than half of our schools serve free lunches. (laughs) The reason they're serving free lunches is because the kids are hungry. And what are their parents eating? Uh, What is going on in our country that we're okay with with the percentage of kids that are experiencing hunger? I don't know. So it's not that my, my experience is an aberration and that we've moved beyond it. We waste more than a third of the food that we grow, and uh, it just goes into to the dump. We don't have a food creation problem. We have a food access problem, and we cannot be okay with the impact that it has in the lives of kids. I mean, my, I grew up eating out of the trash. I ate whatever the government was handing out, a block of cheese, a giant can of whatever, peanut butter, for instance. And then in foster care, um, it in this particular home, it was weaponized. Um, you know, it's hard to, uh, it's hard to form a thought or misbehave or be mouthy, which is what I was often called. If you can't think because the hunger is so intense, you become a dullard. And that was also a place that I sought refuge because when you think about hunger and, and I think a lot of people think they've been hungry. I think experiencing the depth of hunger is different than being hungry in that minute, the knowledge that you can satiate that hunger whenever you chose is fundamentally different when you cannot, and you know, you cannot. And then it just grows and yawns and you can just kind of walk into it like a cave. And for me in that particular foster home, and then even earlier and then later as well, I began to understand that hunger was a place that I could seek refuge because it was a physical consuming emotion and mental but also physical. So when things were done to me, um, violence or, or other, you know, awful things, I was able to be in that place of just thinking about what hunger felt like. And that actually helped me get through a lot. <clears throat> and when I eventually made my way to an amazing foster home with Holly and Steve, <clears throat> Holly, you know, inherited a, you know, rather emaciated character who was struggling. Um, I didn't have any type of diagnosed eating disorder. I just, I had a really hard relationship with food and it became a refuge for me to deal with all of the different things that were done to me. 
and Holly, my foster mom, my good foster mom and Steve, my, her husband, my foster dad, they basically just kind of threw open the gate. And I tell the story one day they came home from Costco and they had all the food on the counter and Holly's like, what do you want? And I just was overwhelmed with the bounty and not just the bounty, but the access, you know, eat whenever you want, go in the kitchen, get whatever you want. It's such a, it's such a um, casual, beautiful bounty that we have in this country. And for someone coming from absolute desperation and then the weaponization to come into a home that just used food as love, it was daunting. And the other thing that Holly was asking me to do in that moment was to give up my refuge because the relationship with hunger is one that demands a lot of you. (laughs) And she was saying, leave that behind, move forward. And it, it was through her aggressive love that I was able to. Yeah. Now you, um, you're gay. You, you knew you were gay, I guess, fairly young. Um, or you knew that you were attracted to other boys anyway. Um, and you also knew that it was not safe to, um, to let anybody know that. And, uh, you didn't end up coming out until college, I believe. Correct. Um, fully. Yes. Yeah. 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 So, um, I, I just, I guess, I, I guess I, I mean, it's not unlike a lot of kids growing up, but I think particularly for you growing up in, um, poverty and in foster care where just getting something to eat is foremost in your mind, uh, that, um, the idea of dealing with your sexuality is just put way in the back of the line, I guess is maybe one of the reasons why it took so long. I, uh, you know, you're hitting on something, you know, in our day to day as a child before foster care, it was about survival. And I was also a child. (laughs) Um, it wasn't foremost in my mind in that way, but it also surrounded by messages of society. You know, we were in shelters that were (laughs) filled with men dying of AIDS and my mom was homophobic and, you know, transphobic and society was, it was the norm. Uh, it was the law. Yeah. And that was a very clear lesson to me that, you know, here's what happens when you are gay. They're all over the shelter system in New York city and they're abandoned and they are untouchable. And by the way, you're sleeping next to them. And here's the message of what you will become. Um, and then to go into a state sanctioned system where I was diagnosed and treated. Um, and it, 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 this message was very clear to me. And then to experience the way that I did, you know, with such a lack of uh, representation in media and content, positive, and with not enough queer people being allowed to be foster parents, uh, I just was in a system that taught me implicitly and explicitly, called the United States of America, that I was not right. And so you just don't flip a light switch on, you know, 15, 20 years of trauma, you have to come through your journey. And, you know, when I was in college, it was the year Matthew Shepard was crucified. And, you know, there was a whole debate in mainstream media about gay panic defense. Yes. And, and I'm like, what the hell is gay panic defense? I'm like, oh, if I hit on someone, I'm, it's okay to kill me if they're straight. And that was a valid conversation on mainstream media about what is the appropriate response when you get hit on by a queer person. So it, it's not that it went away or there's a particular individual. It's our collective response as a society to the other. Yes. And kids hear it. And so I, it didn't just come out. 
it took me a while to overcome such trauma, physical, sexual violence to become who I am today. But I, I have fully come out, <laughs> shocking to everyone here, and continue to be an advocate for kids, queer kids that don't have a vote, don't have a voice necessarily. And we, as a community, not even just as a gay community, as a queer community, but as a community, need to make sure these kids are getting the affirmative care that they need. And part of that is stepping up to foster. If you can't do that, are you asking questions of your local systems? Log into a virtual meeting. They're all virtual now. Ask a question. Um, donate a dollar to the local queer center, even if it's 85,000 miles away. Get involved because these kids need us to, not just gay people, all people with compassion in their heart for these young people. 20% of kids in foster care are queer. Why? And what yeah. do they need from us? Especially in places where you know, as a listener, where you know what these kids are facing. Yeah. So uh, it was a hard coming out process for me. I came out early in college, but not in anywhere in my life. I came out in DC to work on that issue I mentioned. And then I eventually came out to my sister and others as I uh, graduated college. Ballsy place to come out because not everybody, <laughs> even in the room that day yeah. in DC, you know, there were, there was homophobia in the room that day when you came out. So that was, I thought that was pretty ballsy. Um, yeah. And, and not to make this about me, although I tend to make it about me from time to time, but you know, I, I grew up with a mother, but she was an alcoholic and she was not available. Very, you know, she loved me and I knew that your mom loved you. You knew it as well, but she also was not available. You know, we had a home. So, um, I learned everything I learned about life from society from and society was what happened at school and what happened on television, you know, and so what society says about being gay, you know, that was all I had. So, you know, I tell my brother, I was like, you know, I grew up in the same world that you did. I grew up thinking being gay was wrong. You know, I just I didn't have the luxury of just kind of blowing that off because I happen to be gay. So, you know, yeah. we had to, and so these kids that are in foster care, you know, are in, in that boat and it's, it's really important that we do something. So we only have um, a, a, a few more minutes. Obviously you've decided to devote your life uh, to this, which I think is amazing. But I, I think, I think what I want to end with David is there's, there is such a you've overcome so much, you know, from a from a kid who is rooting around trash cans for food in the middle of New York City to, you know, graduating from UCLA with a law degree. You know, you write a book, you're a child advocate. I mean, it's just it's just amazing what you've done. And uh, it's such passion, such strength, such drive. And I want to ask you where that comes from, but I, I think I know where it comes from. And I think at least a part of it comes from your mother mm -hmm. because she had as sick as she was, she also could not be stopped when she got something, when she wanted something, right? Um, so, but anyway, beyond that, I just wondered what your thoughts were on where this comes from, this, this, this strength. Yeah. Yeah. Well, first, thank you. Um, second, and I will answer your question, but I, I want to say 
it that question manifests in different ways, which is this belief, I think, that some have, and maybe not yourself, but if we can map out how David Ambrose got to be here, we can sort of apply that more broadly. And it's just not the case. Um, all of our DNA is so unique. And what we need to develop is a system of poverty reduction in our country that is robust to handle the messiness of humanity. Um, I think uh, this slender policy, which would have addressed my needs, would not broadly apply. Um, I think we need to develop a system that um, uh, lifts up people no matter what their cases are, no matter what their full potential might be. So I always think about our poverty programs in this country as like a person is drowning off the side of a boat and we sort of reach into the water and we lift the person out for a second and the person goes, <gasps> and then the program drops them back in the water. And then another person in the boat lifts the person out of the water because it's another program and we never pull them out of the water. They are just constantly treading and they get to breathe occasionally. That is what we try and do with poverty. We try and segment the human condition into neat things like housing and food and education and mental health. It's all of a piece. We cannot disaggregate the messiness of the human condition. So what got me here will not get many other people here. What I would say is unique is absolutely the flame that my mom set when I was a child, constantly enforcing that her three kids would be successful, even in the state we were in, saying that I would become a Supreme Court justice. I wasn't even in school for like a decade, but my mom said that and it meant something. And I also had a brother and sister that were like bookends, making sure that I never fell flat. And we did that for each other. And then I do believe at my core, for me, part of it was being gay. There is this thing, and I, I find such beautiful writing out there in the world that I can't even come close to, like by Tony Kushner, where there is something inside of us that we begin to understand at a very early age, or, or Dr. Alan Downs, we know the fragility of what that is, and we have to protect it. And the way that you protect it is to live a life that is both outward and perf performative. And I learned very early to distract people through success in other ways, to not look at that part because society taught us that we're not worthy of love. And so as a queer person coming up, I did all those things that are in those beautiful writings. And then the final piece I'll say is I'm here today because of the government. I'm alive today because of this thing that we denigrate every single day in our country. We think it's cool. I'm here today because of food stamps. I'm here today because of public shelters. I'm here today because of free government cheese. I'm here today because of tens of homes that were opened up to foster because of government, imperfect as most of them were. I'm here today because I went to college with Pell Grants. I'm here today because of the government. And we have to realize that it undergirds everything we're going to do together to uplift people like myself out of poverty. It's not going to happen without it. I'm not here today because of a thing that happened. I'm here today because of our imperfect government that we need to keep working on. Because you know, the truth is we are the government. Voting every once in a while does not make this a republic. That's lazy. You have to get involved. Mm -hmm. And that's what I hope my book does. I hope it in inspires people to move from empathy and wondering who's going to help this kid to realize that they, we are the government. We are the, the thing we've been waiting for. We are the thing the kids need us to, to act up and get involved. So the final thing I would say is 
is I'm here today because every single person listening to this, we collectively are the government. We are the United States. It's not geography. It's people. It's a perception. It's a conception. It's a belief system. And we may disagree on some things, but I think we can agree left and right, purple, blue, red, that kids in state custody should be given every chance and every bit of love and every resource they need. I don't think that's very political. And I think most people of goodwill would agree. We need to fight that. We need to make that happen. Yeah, no, that's that's very well said, and particularly that we are the government. Um, and what's also lazy is people that just say, you know, I, all government is bad, all politicians are bad, we want less government, we want, you know, it's like, no, I mean, what if we just got rid of all government? Why don't we do that? You know, it, you know, I bet that if you put a large number of people on an island, they would form some sort of body <laughs> naturally to try and, you know, at pool resources in order to do things that are good for the group. You know, that's what government is. So, you know, this idea that all government is bad and all people are bad, it's just that it's it's lazy thinking. It's ridiculous. But um, we have an election coming up. I hope everybody uh, votes at a minimum. Uh, but then, uh, yeah, I would encourage people to get involved. So where does somebody go if they want to find out more about you or about how they might be able to get involved? So, um, I try to make this super easy, uh, mm-hmm. davidambrose.com and there's a click, uh, uh, button that says activism, click there and it takes you into a nonprofit. I started called Fostermore, which has many different purposes. One of which is to help people get involved in their local area. And it's not just about becoming a foster parent. It's about the bare minimum things you can do, like educate yourself. It's how do we do that? It, all the way up, donate a dollar to a scholarship, become a court-appointed special advocate or a big brother, big sister, if you will, for foster kids, or how to get involved in poverty in general in your community, all the way up to foster and adoption. But there is a ladder that you get to decide where it's right for you. That's clicked through on my website, davidambrose.com. You can also find my book there and other things that I've done in my past. All right. Thank you. And it's David Ambrose with a Z, A-M-B-R-O-Z. That's important. That's right. Thank you. Because there is another David Ambrose with an S. <laughs> That's true. I'm going to call him uh, see if he'll get off the internet. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much. I very much appreciate uh, you uh, for sharing your time. The book is A Place Called Home. The author is David Ambrose with a Z. Uh, and um, that's going to do it for the show. Thank you, David, for coming. All right. And next up, we have uh, Peach State Festival. Uh, and uh, I hope you had a good time last week. And um, do good things. Talk to you soon. Bye.